Yeah, I was just thinking, how would you refer to politics if you didn't have the word politics to do it with? You know, it's, it's such a common word. If you pay attention to anything, you're going to hear it all day. We hear it all day. People think about it all day. And it's, it's become very self-defining. Well, what's politics? It's politics. But if you didn't have that particular word, you know, how would you describe the concept? Not like how would you define the word politics, although that's a good question too. But uh, how would you refer to it if you were trying to refer to it? And I'm not going to try to answer that because I don't even know. But people have such confidence in it. They have such confidence that they know what they're talking about. It's become self-defining. But, you know, it's, it's so abstracted, but people think of it as something that's so concrete. And I think sometimes, too, about, you know, the people who are interested in politics, like people who consider themselves interested in politics, everything from somebody who just, you know, watches it on TV, pays attention to the latest political news on TV, all the way to a, some sort of academic analysis. There's always so much confidence in it. Meanwhile, it's, it's, it's such a, an abstract, intangible idea. But when people talk about it, they seem to have total conviction. You know, for something so abstract, something that requires, too, such a, a large... It plays out on, on, you know, within a, such a large scope. And often you can't even measure it except in long periods of time, long to us. You know, long to within the individual human lifespan. You know, yeah, some political moves, some political maneuvers have an immediate impact, but even those, though, you, you can't truly measure them except on a very long timeline, and then the scope is so large too. So it's one of the most difficult things to quantify, and it, it's it's. Uh, incredibly difficult to know what the right decision is. But when people think about it or talk about it, they have just utter conviction. Like I think about this kid that I grew up with who later became a hardcore Marxist. And I remember him getting into that in college and just the utter conviction he had. Oh, he'd stumbled upon the right thing. Stumbled upon the right thing. You know, and, and it would it would take such a a grand level of wisdom to understand, you know, what's truly right politically. But all someone has to do is hear the idea they like. The, the idea that oh I, I discovered this, I read about this. But you see it too, you know, with just people who watch it on TV. They're like, oh, you know, I'm just a casual observer, but uh, I'm right. The thing I believe in is right. And of course, you know, this is true down the board. It's something people do. But politics in particular brings out such conviction in people. They know they're right. You know, because people always say that about religion but and spirituality, but I'd say there, there's a much wider spectrum 
We're like, yeah, the people we notice are the people who believe it with utter conviction. But there's far more people who are who question it, people who believe in something but question it, have a sense of humor about it, will admit they're not all-knowing, will admit they're just kind of figuring it out, will admit that aspects of it don't make sense to them. There's a ton of that in just general spirituality. But there's a lot of it, than, there's a lot more of it in religion than people give credit to as well. You know, the idea of questioning your faith, even, you know, diehard faiths. There's a lot more of that in religion than there is politics. And it's what a lot of religion actually is. I mean, sure, you do have these zealots and people who, who have such severe conviction like you see in politics. But when you strip it away from just human nature and what human beings do with ideas, you know, spirituality and religion is just very much a question mark. Even if you think you're onto something or someone else is onto something and now you're onto it, uh, there still is just a built-in question mark in it. You see that far less with politics. And again, though, like I was saying at the beginning, like how would you refer to it if you didn't have the word? And it would take a lot of words. It would take a lot more words than you probably have. Most people probably, they probably have some idea, but it's become a thing in people's minds. Like when they hear that word, they visualize something. I mean, I tend to visualize just, you know, a courtroom, a Washington, D.C., you know, the Senate Hall, and gray suits. And that's probably the dumbest visualization I have of it. I don't, when I hear politics, I don't always think of exactly that, but I often do, and always have. But with, uh, I, I also visualize something else that I can't quite put to words. But even to me, even though, you know, I, here I am saying, like, what even is it? How would someone refer to it if they didn't have the word? You know, even though I'm saying that, and I'm acknowledging how intangible it actually is and what a spell it is that has been put in people's minds, on people's minds. Even though I'm saying that, I still think of it as a thing too and don't really have a way to define it or refer to it without using the word itself. And that's, you know, I don't recommend going around doing this, but it's sometimes it's interesting to think about something and say like, how would I refer to this if I didn't have the word for it? How would I refer to pornography if I didn't have the word porn? I like porno. There was this shift. You don't hear people talk about this, but there was this shift where I would say up until the time, maybe maybe pre-internet, pretty much before the internet was in everybody's homes, I remember hearing porno with an O on it a lot more often. Porno mags. Reading porno mags. Oh, he was watching a porno. Looking at porno. And there was this, this change where suddenly the O was dropped. It's very antiquated to say porno. 
porno. Porn. And I hate the way porn sounds. Porn. Are you looking at porn? He caught, his mom caught him looking at porn. What you doing? You looking at porn? Oh man, look, guys look at so much porn these days. You know, I just hate the way porn sounds. That's another word you hear so much. You hear it so much. And people have, you know, questioned uh, what that word means, you know, because it, it's always changing, it's relative, it's culturally relative. If you were to say, like, what is porn? I mean, for me, like, I, I believe that I have an intuitive sense of what's pornographic and what's not. I can tell if something's pornographic, even if it's not obviously pornographic. Like, I have an intuitive sense that, oh, that's... That's uh, that fits my broader definition of pornography or perversion. It's not just oh, it's a video or a picture of people having sex. Sick. People having sex. People having sex. People having. I mean, that's how you define it today. Where you know, in the West, at least, you'd be like, oh yeah, it's. It's uh, a video of people having sex. People having a sec. That's pretty much how you define it. And like when I hear it, like it's again a thing that like I have a visual in my mind, but it's kind of a composite. Like I see flesh, I see blonde hair. Even though I really haven't seen, you know, that sort of old school porno look in a long time like tan you know bleach blonde hair that's still a part of my visual i think because it had such an impact like when i was introduced to porno pleased to meet you but when i was introduced to porno that was what you saw so i think that had an impact but i wonder how that kid born today visualizes it because, I mean, I haven't even thought about this until just now, but, uh, you know, we now have an entire generation of young people who, one, are exposed to a lot more porn, have easier access to porn than ever before, but they've just consumed a much different type of porn with a much wider array of people and looks. And it's, I've talked before about, like, the hyper-specification of people's interests where it's like the idea that like you can go to a website and there's categories and subcategories and you can vi find a very specific thing and I experienced the transition between you know the old world which was you'll take anything you can get like I remember I had this pro wrestling magazine that had like a collection of uh, I don't know if you call them centerfolds or what it was but it was just a bunch of different pictures of, you know, the wrestling divas. And because it was pro wrestling in the late 90s, it was more uh, pornographic feeling. Like they were wearing lingerie. Like it was far more sexual. It was more sexual than Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, which I was never into. Even before the internet, even like hitting puberty where there was all this hype about, oh, dude... 
dude, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues. Oh, dude, I went to Walden Books and they had the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. And when my mom wasn't looking, I looked at it. You know, you hear stuff like that. It was a, a big deal. I never found it very attractive, though. I'm just not attracted to those types of models for the most part. They're beautiful. But I've never really found them that sexually attractive. And uh, so I never gave a shit about the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition and just swimsuits in general. I've never found swimsuits that sexual. I'm very attracted to lingerie. I'm very attracted to certain types of undergarments, as they're called. But not swimsuits. But with the pro wrestling magazines, it was... It felt far more... Like, it, it turned me on. You know, it was far more sexual feeling to me. And there's one I remember in particular, and it was... Diamond Dallas Page's wife, Kimberly, was her name. And it was this, this uh, what they'd call a photo spread of Kimberly. None of it was nude. But it was, it was very suggestive and, you know, what she was wearing, that type of thing. And I just remember being just so excited by it. But when I think about, you know, the, the sort of women I'm attracted to, <clears throat> I wouldn't be like Kimberly. Kimberly Page. Which is a good name, Kimberly Page. I wouldn't think of her as, but it, it was just, that's what I had. That's my point. It's just, that's what I had. And that's sort of what people say about Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition and Victoria's Secret. Because that's another one that I never cared about. I never cared about the Victoria's Secret catalog. And you hear people from the generations before me be like the Sears catalog, lingerie section. That always just felt really sterile to me. Like, what I liked about the pro wrestling magazines is they didn't feel sterile. Whereas Sports Illustrated and Victoria's Secret did. But both those things are a version of just, like, taking what you will. Like, if I had access to just a, an endless sea of pornographic images, I wouldn't have chosen the pro wrestling magazine. And that goes for all kinds of things that were on TV. Like my friends at my friend Ryan's house, rest in peace. But at my friend Ryan's house, his house was the best house to have sleepovers at. You know, just a, a whole a group of kids would just spend the entire summer there. We'd stay up all night. And his family had digital cable before most people did. And he had it in his room. And they had a couple of those channels. I'm trying to remember what they were even called. They weren't porn channels. But in the middle of the night, they would play softcore porn. They would play these B movies, these, you know, made for, it wasn't even HBO or anything. I think one of them was called Max, Cinemax. I think Cinemax was one of them. Yeah, it was Cinemax because people would make the joke, Skinemax, Skinemax. But it was called that because they would show these softcore movies in the middle of the night. And when I think back about those, like, if, if we had the option between that and something else, we would have chosen something else. Maybe, though. Because there was a time at Ryan's house, it was in the summer, and his mom was at work. And one thing we'd do is, there were two actual porn channels 
on digital cable, but they you had to, they were pay per view, so we couldn't watch them. But we would go and see which ones were on and read the descriptions. There was one that I remember that used to always be on called Boomawang. Boomawang. But uh, we would just read the descriptions and be like, oh my. We'd laugh. But there was a time where his mom went to work and it was in the summer. And we'd always joke about buying one. And my friend Nick and I, we were the ones who hung out there the most. One day we were just, we were like, we, we put it on, like we had clicked the button on the porn channel. It was asking, it gave us a prompt that said like buy or cancel. And we were like passing the remote between each other and being like, should we, should we do it? Should we do it? Because the concern is that, you know, his mom's going to get a bill for a, a porno. She's going to find out. This isn't us just going to the, the bad channel. They're going to be billed for this. It's money for one. And two, she's going to know. But we passed the remote and Ryan, you know, we weren't doing like he, he was enjoying it too. He was enjoying the prospect of like, should we do it? Should we be bad? And it was a movie called Return to Fetish Island. And finally, I believe Nick and I hit the button together at the same time. We were like, we're just going to do it. It was a, a leap of faith moment where we were like, we're just going to do it. And whatever happens, happens. Like his mom wasn't the type to make a big deal. She would, I mean, she certainly wouldn't want us buying porno movies. But she also was a, a, a cool mom in many ways, you know, in, in every way. And uh, so we did it. And we saw just a couple minutes of it. It was a couple 69ing and they were both, it wasn't like gimp stuff. You know, it was called Return to Fetish Island, but it, it wasn't that crazy or anything that I remember, but it felt like it. Cause the girl, she was in, they were in Zorro type masks. She was wearing some sort of outfit. You know, she was completely exposed, but she was in some sort of kinky outfit, but it wasn't, you know, bondage or anything. It was maybe trying to slightly hint at that. I just feel like it was like black see-through clothing or something. But they were 69ing and it was just, you know, close-up. You know, it was a close-up of what was going on. And then there was uh, eventually penetration and it was a close-up of that. And honestly, I don't know if I'd ever seen that in video form. This is before the internet. I don't believe I'd ever actually seen that in video form. We must have been 12 years old. I think I'd, I'd seen probably still images in magazines and stuff, but I'd never seen that a close-up in video. And honestly, we were horrified. We knew what all that stuff was. We weren't prudes as far as kids go, but it was horrifying. And I think the masks, the, the Zorro masks played a role. I think the name of the movie played a role. You know, it was just a porno, but I think it, it it had a darkness for us. It was just a porno, but it had a darkness for us. Um, we were horrified, and like we could have sat there, like like we ordered it. There's no going back. His mom's gonna know now. But we didn't. We we turned it off. We were like, I think we were kind of traumatized by it. 
And, and I never, never had a group of friends. Like, nobody ever jerked off in front of anyone. We'd watch these pornos and all probably, we're all probably turned on. But nobody, you know, you hear about these groups of guys growing up who jerked off in the same room and things like that. Nothing like that ever came close to happening. But, uh, so we, we weren't going to watch this and jerk off together. But we were mentally stimulated. But return to Fetish Island, no. We were horrified by, we'd done something bad by ordering it. But then it, it wasn't even something we could enjoy. And it might have been a totally different thing if it was a different movie. But I think all of us were, were kind of shocked by the how explicit it truly was. And by today's standards, it wasn't. Oh, there were 69 in? Oh, there was a penetration shot? It's all very standard. And nothing today. But we... Uh, you know, we were horrified by it. And then we decided the best thing to do was for Ryan to call his mom right away and just tell her. But come up with a, a lie, like give it a slant. And the lie we came up with, I'm not sure who came up with it, but this is what Ryan told his mom. He called her at work and he was like, oh, hey, like Nick and we took responsibility. Me and Nick took responsibility. And he told his mom, uh, you know, Eric and Nick were joking about ordering a porn and throwing the remote between each other. Like they were throwing the remote at each other, joking about ordering it, and it accidentally got ordered. And she was just like, okay. <laughs> and that was it. I never heard another thing about it. Uh, it, it was all under the bridge. And she knew it was a lie. I mean, I, I know that his mom knew we were lying. But we were, Nick and I, we were, we were happy to have him blame us. You know, it's his house and everything. We readily agreed. I don't even think we had to think about it. It was just like, oh, just tell her. Thinking back, I think it was me who came up with the lie, the stupid lie. I vaguely remember being the one, I'm like, just tell her we were throwing the remote between each other, joking about ordering it, and the button accidentally got hit. The dumbest lie in the world. But it's also, you can, you can believe that. Because we were kind of doing that to begin with. We were, we were kind of, we were like passing the remote between each other, joking like, gonna hit the button, hit the button. So we were kind of doing a version of that, it's just that we deliberately hit the button what they call deliberately hitting the button. Um, but yeah, anyway, anyway, you know, kids at that age, like, that, that was even like the cutting edge of technology. Like the idea that you could go like look at what porn movies were available to order and just order it through the TV. You know, that was a new thing. You know, there, there, were, there was porno on TV. There were porn channels and things like that. But that was even kind of the cutting edge. You know, the internet wasn't around yet. Nobody I knew had it. I didn't have it. But you... Uh, it's almost like that in a way. You know, just having porn just sitting there waiting for you to click a button. It's just that it wasn't free. 
and your parents would easily find out because you ordered a porn and they're going to see it on the, the bill. If they look, that's a thing too, though. It's like that, that's based on the assumption that your parent would look. Because I think about, you know, granted, I don't, I don't have children or anything. But, you know, if I had digital cable and there were pay-per-view movies, you know, like I'm sure his parents would order just regular pay-per-view movies. And like, you know, they get their bill. Are they going to go through everything that was ordered? Are they going to go through the whole itemized list? Like I get my bills and if it's pretty close to what I normally pay, I just go, okay. You know, if my cable bill was like $10 over, and I, and, and I knew that I ordered movies sometimes and things like that, I wouldn't even think to look. I wouldn't go through item by item and be like, what exactly was ordered? You know, maybe right now I would because my cable bill's the same every single month. I know exactly what it's going to be. It's a fixed number. But if I had a family and people were occasionally watching things, ordering them... You know, I don't know that I'd take the time and put on my reading glasses and go through the whole itemized bill. It's kind of like they used to send me an itemized list of like every phone call and text message I made. Not not the content of it, but just the numbers that it went to. And I remember looking at it once. But there was no reason to really care or pay that much attention. So if we hadn't told his mom, like, would she have even noticed? There's this assumption when you're a kid, especially that, oh, she's going to, she's going to know. The first thing she do, she does when she gets the cable bill in the mail is go through the list. You know, who knows if she even would have, but in our mind, that's what a parent does. They get, oh, they get the bill and they go through the list. They go through the list. But and this is just like old guy stuff. It's just, uh, you know, anybody who was born, who experienced this before the changes took place, you did just, you know, take what you could get. Like, I even remember I, I had this toy ship when I was a little kid, I had this toy ship, and it didn't have uh, whatever whatever that's called, like the mermaid at the front, what they call the mermaid at the front. It didn't have that, but it had a uh, had an emblem on the side, and it was a topless mermaid. I don't even think you could see her her boobs. I don't feel like it was graphic. Like, I don't feel like you could actually see her nipples or anything. It might have just been, you know, little more than a blob of color. I mean, I'm sure it was. It was just a toy ship. But I remember I was very young, too. I must have been, I mean, honestly, I could have been four years old. And I remember feeling a thrill looking at that. I remember getting a thrill out of it, being like, oh. Like, feeling like I, I had a little secret. And not just I had a little secret, but like actually feeling the closest thing that you can feel to a sexual thrill at that age. 
I don't know that I could have comprehended something actually that's actually pornographic at that age. But just this vague shape of a boobed mermaid, I was I felt a thrill, and it was what I had. You know, at that age, it's not like, oh, I'm going to take my toy ship and jerk off to it. You know, it, it, that's not even a concept to you. But you, when you look at it, you feel a little thrill. Another example, I, I think I, I know I talked about this on here, but my next door neighbor, his family owned the movie Earth Girls Are Easy. Which is a really goofy movie. It's meant to be, but it's a it, it's a truly goofy movie. I rewatched it for the first time in probably thirty two years. We when I was about yeah like five or six years old is probably the last time I saw that, but I saw it many 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 times because my next door neighbor had it, and I'd go over to his house when we were we were that young, and we'd just watch it over and over again. And I think one of the reasons we liked it is because it had kind of an air of sexuality. You know, Gina Davis is very sexual feeling in it. She's very sexual feeling. And there is a scene where she's getting a makeover and they rip some... They, she's, she has like this gown on while she's getting the makeover and she's laying down on a table or a slab. It's very medical seeming. And they rip... I guess she's getting a probably a wax or something, but they she's in this gown and then like they rip they rip these like holes out where her nipples are and I believe you see her nipples for a second. And my friend and I would just rewind that over and over again. I mean that's that's far more sexual than the the boobed blob mermaid on the toy ship. Because you're actually seeing an actress's nipples, if I remember correctly. If you don't see them, it feels like you do. But we were just taken by that. And again, we were too young to really do anything. Like, you know, we were too young to really know what that is. But it was just mentally stimulating. But then that continued, you know. It was just as you get older, as you hit puberty... Before the internet, you, if it's a pro wrestling magazine, you go with that. Easy to hide. Your mom's not going to think about the pro wrestling magazine you have. But embedded in its pages are the divas. Kimberly Page. And so you, you can just have a stack of wrestling magazines in your bedroom. And you don't even have to hide them. Hey, Eric's really into pro wrestling, which he is. So you don't even need to hide him. But, uh, you know, and then even after the introduction of the internet, it wasn't like porn was that easy to find. I mean, you could find it, but your computer was excruciatingly slow. Like, I still remember, I would look up the divas on... Uh, I feel like that was maybe before I was I didn't really have the balls to try to look up porn when I got the internet. But I remember looking up the divas. The divas were my gateway drug. 
And of course, I was attracted to all kinds of things. I have many gateway drugs, but the divas were a gateway drug to pornography because I remember, you know, I, I'd already looked through the magazines, but then I, I would like, there'd be even more scandalous photos of them online. And I still remember how long it took for just an image to download. You'd click to look at an image of one of the divas and it would just very slowly and gradually load centimeter by like a centimeter every five seconds. It really was like that. And then eventually you'd have this full image of Sable crouching down in a thong. Terry Runnels in a wet t-shirt. But even that, and you had to do it covertly. Like, you know, my mom worked, so I would get home from school maybe an hour before my mom got home from work. And I, I do remember at that age, oh, I have an hour. And then eventually, I don't, I would, I wish I could remember when it turned to actual porn or, because you don't, the thing is, all you heard was like, if you look at porn, you're going to get a virus. If you look at porn, you're going to get a virus. It was sort of what they said about chat rooms. If you go into a chat room, you're going to get a pedophile is going to fly you out to the middle of the country and, you know, do what you, you know what he's going to do. You know, that was the idea. Like, oh, if your wife's in a chat room, she's going to leave you for a guy in another part of the country. There are all these fears. Oh, if you buy something on the Internet... They're just going to steal your credit card. You know, they're going to steal your credit card identity. They're going to steal your identity and your credit card. There were these great fears about the Internet, and for good reason. You know, a lot of that wasn't realistic, but there's a good, there's a good reason why people feared that. And why people today are like, oh my God, the Internet's responsible. The Internet's not responsible. But, I mean, it was such a, a massive invention it was such a game changer that how could people not be afraid of it but their fears aren't going to be big picture when something like the internet was introduced people's fears about it weren't going to be like what are the implications of this what are people going to be like 30 years from now if they look at this what are people going to be like if, if their phones are just this all the time nobody was capable of thinking that way or seeing that Instead, it was practical fears. But the point is, there, there was something to fear, and it was just, this thing is a big thing. This is Pandora's box. At least it's the latest. It's, it's the newest Pandora's box. But the fear manifested in these very base fears, these basic fears, which is like, oh, if your kid's on the internet, a pedophile's going to get them. If you use your credit card, someone's going to steal all your money. If you look at porno, you're going to you know, get a virus. You know what these porn sites are like. You're going to get a virus. And the thing is, there's a lot of truth to it, too. Like, all those things did happen to people. They were, you know, porn viruses were more common, but it's like there were kids who got abducted by pedophiles, pedos. They were, that did happen to kids. It was rare, but it happened. 
People's wives did leave them for the mystery man in the chat room. People did have their credit cards stolen. People did have their identities stolen. It was pretty rare, though. And there was kind of an irrational fear about how bad it actually was. But with porn, you know, uh, excuse me, porno, it, w it was a much more realistic fear to be like, oh yeah, you might get a virus if you go to those sites. But it's always been funny to me that in the same way that being sexually reckless in real life is more likely to give you a virus, an STD. It's funny to me that the digital equivalent, because I mean, looking at porno, it's sexually reckless. You know, it's different than having casual sex with a bunch of strangers, but it's the digital equivalent. You go to porno sites and you're like, who can I find today? Who can I jack off to today? Eh? You know, that's what you do. And chances are you want a different person. Like, you're not excited by the same things over and over again. And I'm not even talking about, you know, the, the escalation of perversion. That gets talked about a lot, where it's like, oh, you start looking at big double DDs today, and, you know, tomorrow you're looking at uh, guys getting kicked in the balls while they're hanging upside down, uh, you know, kissing an animal. Because that happens, of course. You know, people's... I don't know, that, that never happened for me. Like, even though I was exposed to the to internet pornography shortly after puberty, my taste didn't get more extreme by any means. I think it, the opposite. I think what I look for became more specific. Like, eventually I realized that I, I'm looking for very specific types of women. And I only really want to look at that. So for me, it became hyper-specific, which might not be good. Because I remember, you know, being, this is a sex talk, but I remember being young, much younger, and finding, like, a much broader array of women sexually attractive. Like, when I was looking at porn, you know, in those first years, I wasn't really that picky about it. You know, there was obviously certain things I just wasn't going to be, certain women I wasn't going to be attracted to. But uh, I wasn't that specific. It was just if she was hot. And what was hot to me was pretty a pretty wide spectrum. She just had to be hot. But, you know, now and for the last, I don't know, 20 years... I'm looking for something highly specific, and it's only gotten more specific. It hasn't gotten more extreme, though. I think it's gotten more tame. Like I've said on here before, like I'm content to just look at Im still images. I don't like... I'm not really into nudity that much. Like, nudity has its place. Nudity's important. But uh, I'm not looking for that if I look at smut. I'm looking for still images, but the but it's like they're very specific. And uh, relatively tame though by today's standards. But anyway, um, that's you know so and there were there were far fewer like subcategories. 
You know, it used to be where the, there, there were categories, but now it's like if you go to a porn site today, you know, the, the subcategories within subcategory, the keywords within keywords, it's crazy. And a young person has access to that and can just immediately go down that. That's their introduction is they just, there's so much of it and you can't stop it. Like at least when I was introduced to the internet, like I said, have maybe an hour. Let's hope mom doesn't get home early from work. I have maybe an hour. And everybody knows if you look at porno, especially in the age of the internet, even on a, you know, a 28.8, whatever K modem, you know, it still takes, you know, you still like, you're going to spend a lot of time like looking for the right thing at that age, probably less so because like I said, I considered a far wider array of women hot. So it probably didn't take me that long and, and it was still mysterious and unpredictable. Now it's very predictable. But you know, I never had a problem with it. Like I never had any kind of uh, compulsive addiction to porno. Compared to somebody from the 1940s, yes. I've said this before where... You know, I think of like at my peak, it's like, oh, I look at porno every day. Look at porno every day. Maybe at certain points in my youth, sometimes multiple times a day. But, you know, most days, maybe once a day, which isn't that much. You know, it is. Like, a guy in the 1940s who looks at, who watches porn every day would be considered incredibly perverse. He'd be a cautionary tale, like, oh, hey, Eric looks at porn every day. You don't want to be like him. But now, if you just look at porn once a day, it's considered the mi- not even the minor league. It's T-ball. And it's good not to do that. Like, it's good to resist that. I don't think you should look at porn every day. Maybe not at all. I'm not... Because the thing is, when you oppose porn too heavily, you create a need for porn. So when someone has this reactionary opinion, we've seen this reactionary, you know, response... The last 10 years, I don't know, it's probably been a little longer. You can see it, it building before all this, but you really started to see it in the 2010s where all these young men who were who grew up having total access to porn suddenly started to oppose it and be like, don't jerk off. You retain more spiritual energy. Your life is better when you don't jack off. And it's bad to look at porn. It does something to you. And you start to see these movements around it. And these and th- these are not from Puritans. These are from young men who had been just surrounded by it, who had had problems with it. But I'm never I I, I don't believe in that either. I don't believe in being hardline opposed to pornography because you create more of a need for it. 
and ultimately have less control over yourself and control over it. But if you choose, you know, if you can not look at it, I think it's a great thing. It's just that I I would never be like, don't do that. Pornography is evil. There is an evil in it for sure, but I don't know. I just don't. That's not my moral panic parade to to join. But uh, anyway, all this started just because I was talking about just you know having access and what that does, the subcategories, just having total access to it. And if you're someone like me. You can look for your own hyper-specific interest. It didn't become more extreme or dangerous. It just it became more specific. And what I was going to say a minute ago is like with that too. I was I was saying how you know back in the day it was like if you look at porn you're going to get a virus. And how that, you know, you compare that to, you know, the real life equivalent, which is a sexually reckless behavior will give you an STD. And how what's weird about pornography is that you don't want to just watch the same woman over and over again. Like, I'm an incredibly monogamous person who's never cheated on anybody in my life. Never once. I've never cheated on any significant other or somebody I was dating or anything like that. You know, I've been involved a couple times with people who had significant others, which makes me no better. You know, I'm still, you know, a conspirator in that. And I, I think it's a horrible thing to do. Even if you have the right reasons or whatever you want to say. Um, but I, I've always been incredibly... You know, I, I'm either single or I'm 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 either single, not involved in with anybody in any way whatsoever, or I'm monogamous. There's no in between for me. There's no playing the field. That said, you know, when I look at porno, I'm bored by the same thing. Like any time that I've looked at it, I'm looking for something new. You know, I've never completely understood guys who are like, I like her. I like this porn star. Oh, I'm really into this porn star. Like guys who subscribe to an OnlyFans from a certain woman, they're, they have this almost monogamy with these women. This pornographic monogamy. Whereas like, like yeah, there, there's some women and, and things I've watched that I've returned to. I hate to talk about this stuff, but it's real. But there's some stuff I've returned to, but for the most part, I'm just, it, it's almost like, ah, oh, do I have to? Do I have to go back to this? I'm not that way in real life with women, but it's interesting when it's in this like sexual recklessness of like looking at pornography, something that's just only perversity. It's interesting that like I'm like, I can't just keep looking at the same girl. I can't just keep looking at the same picture. I can't just keep... You know, it's, it's just funny how that works.
And you'd think that if you were like that with porno, you'd be like that with real women, but I'm not. But people who are, like people who are sexually reckless in reality are doing a version of that where it's like, gotta have a different girl every night. A different 10 every night. Can't stay with the same 10 every night. You know, it is a, it's the same mentality. It's the same impulse. Um, I don't know. This started somewhere with politics. I guess I, what tied in how I how this all tied into talking about politics was just things that are you know how would you reference it if you didn't have the word like how would you reference porno if you didn't have the word? There are ways to define it, but it is like politics and it's very abstract not quite as much as politics not nearly as much as politics but it still has been abstracted in our minds and even though you think of like abstract art as something that's kind of shapeless it's just uh amorphous these abstract co concepts do kind of turn into something concrete in your mind like i an hour ago however long, a half hour ago, I was saying, you know, my brain is kind of this composite of what I was introduced to. And my introduction to porn was typically like the blonde bombshell, the Jenna Jameson. And so in my mind, when I hear pornography, that's part of the composite. Just part of it, but a big part of it. Even though I haven't seen anything like that in a very long time. I haven't seen that sort of old school blonde bombshell porn in a very long time. But it's, it's, it had an impact. It's, it's how I visualize porn. And what I was about to say a half hour ago was just that I wonder what the visual composite is for young men today who weren't introduced to that. Because that image weighs so heavy in my mind. The image of the Jenna Jameson blonde bombshell double DDs. That era of porno. That weighs so heavily, you know, that it was formative. But I wonder about somebody today, like a, a young man today, a 13-year-old who's going to one of these websites that just is subcategories within subcategories the women he's looking at don't have just one single look. And it wasn't that all of us chose. Like, yeah, like the blonde bombshell was really hot. Like, that's a really hot idea. I'm glad that was the porn that I was introduced to. There is something really attractive about that. Maybe not exactly the way it's portrayed, but in general, I still think that's just something, there's something hot about that look. You know, not something you want in your life. But, you know, as far as porn goes, it made sense that that's how women looked. But there's no, like, central theme today the young men are seeing. Like, there's no one type of woman. Like, even if they're looking for a specific type of woman, like, even if they're going to a porno site saying, like, short, dark hair, tattoo on the back of her thigh... 
small boobs, big ass, you know, even if they're going there looking for like a very specific type of woman, it's not the only thing you have access to. And it was the fact that the Jenna Jameson type was the only thing I had access to and that everybody had access to. That was part of it. It's just, it wasn't by choice. It wasn't what we chose to look at. It's what it was. And so there's a level of choice. Like even if somebody is looking, is only looking at porn of one specific type of woman, it is their choice. And they're probably not doing just that. They probably are looking at a wide variety. So what does their composite look like? I mean, I can barely describe mine, but it's there. There is this, not quite a collage, but a composite. I see glimpses of things in my mind. When I hear the word porn or pornography. And that's an interesting thing to think of, just to jump off from that. It's interesting to think, like, what do other people visualize? What do their composites look like? Because so much of that comes from your introduction to something or your formative experiences. I think about that with heavy metal. I'm big into metal. I'm a metalhead. I'm very into heavy metal. And when I say that, like when I say heavy metal, I'm imagining stuff from the 1980s. I'm imagining power metal. You know, I'm into all kinds of of obscure stuff as well as the, the Iron Maidens and the Slayers. I'm into the heavier stuff. I'm into, I'm into a, you know, I have very specific taste, but I I like a, a full spectrum of metal from that era, from the 90s as well. And when I say that, though, like when I tell someone, oh, I'm really into heavy metal, if they ask, uh, what I'm hoping, because I never want people to know the depths of my interests. So I'm hoping they're just like, oh, he's into Iron Maiden. But I've realized, like, when you say it to people, they're like, oh, Slipknot. Oh, oh, uh, you know, oh, because people will be like, oh, me too. And then, then they, I mean, I remember a coworker of mine some years back going to his house and he was showing me his, his like TV sound system. He could play music through his TV and he, he knew that I was into metal. And so he started playing me Lamb of God. Which, like, I, I'm not saying this to... I, that's what he was into. But it's just, I'm not into that. And uh, it was like, oh yeah, like, he, he knows that I like metal, but it's not this. And so, like, they hear that you like metal, and they imagine something else. They imagine it's what metal is to them. But when I hear metal, the composite in my brain of that idea is older or it's more specific to my tastes and uh, that's not what someone else sees I mean you could say it with rock like when someone says they're into rock music I imagine like classic rock era I don't imagine Eve 6 Weezer but to someone that is you know to someone that is what they envision And that is rock music. 
like Slipknot. Like when I when I say like, oh, I'm into heavy metal, and I all I, I don't want to get into a conversation about it. I don't want to show them the depths. I keep it very superficial with interests and stuff. But I, what I I'm hoping that communicates is just like oh, stuff like Iron Maiden maybe. But they hear it and they're like, oh, this guy likes Slipknot like me. And uh, I'm not even going to say anything negative about that. You know, I'm above trashing Slipknot or something, but that's just simply doesn't even enter my radar. And honestly, I think I, I don't even really know what they sound like. I know that I've heard them, but it's like the band Tool. I don't even know what they sound like. I know that I've heard them. But I, I couldn't actually tell you what the music sounds like. I'm not just making that up to be like, I don't even know what Tool sounds like. I don't even have a TV. You know, I'm, not even, I'm not even trying to say that. I just actually don't have a real idea. Anytime I've been exposed to it, I either didn't know that's what it was or it was in one ear and out the other. But I would describe Slipknot. Like, if you asked me, like, is Slipknot metal? I'd be like, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say they're not. I don't. I don't care. Like I wouldn't. I wouldn't get into whether that's good metal or true metal or anything like that. I'd say yeah, sure, sure. I'm sure that's what they do. I'm sure that's as a form of metal. Form of metal. I'm sure it's a form of metal. I'm sure it is. And so someone's not wrong for hearing me say I like metal and seeing a composite that includes stuff like that. It's just that that's not what it is. And so other people, other people have, it's like with politics. Like you say like, you know, you know, you just bring up the word politics and someone else has a different image. I think we probably have a lot of, I mean, we definitely have a lot of shared composites. Like, we definitely visualize things similarly. I remember uh, I worked for a company that had this consultant in the Middle East who had a lot of influence within the company. And we all kind of, he just seemed like a sinister guy. And I remember that this very progressive lib girl I was dating who worked there only coworker I ever dated. I remember like we were talking about that guy because we never met him. He lived in the Middle East and he was just this very powerful consultant who influenced the company. And she was like, you know, I imagine Jafar. And I guess that's kind of obvious. Like if you're imagining like a sinister guy in the Middle East, you'd imagine Jafar. But I was like, weirdly, that was exactly what I imagined too. And she felt really guilty for saying that because she was consider yourself very progressive but I think that's just where your mind goes and so we had the same visual of him and that's not a composite that's just kind of a, a reference point it's like oh sinister guy in the Middle East we don't know what he looks like Jafar <laughs> he looks like Jafar but uh, it was funny to me that we both that was what we both saw in our heads and so it's similar to what I'm talking about with these composites. Like, I think a lot of people, I know that a lot of people see similar things in their heads. But sometimes we don't, or sometimes it's just a little bit different. And a lot of it has to do with how the idea was introduced to you. 
if porno was a, introduced to you with the Jenna Jameson archetype, that's going to still play a role. I mean, I've seen so much porno since then. I've seen so many more different types of women since Jenna Jameson. Way more than I saw of her when I was 13, 14 years old. Yet that image still, it was formative. Something interesting, this isn't directly related, but it just kind of goes, I mean, it is, it has to do with just visualizing things. And I remember my friend Miles saying to me once that when he was in Sunday school growing up as a little kid, he envisioned uh, when they would talk about Israel, he, and he thought it like was the playground outside. Like that was his visual of it. I'm probably not getting this 100% right. But his visual of what Israel was, because think about that. Like you're talking to a five-year-old kid about Israel and not just Israel. You're talking about it in the, from the Bible. You're reading passages from the Bible. And he's going to visualize something that's more familiar to him that he knows. He doesn't know what Israel looks like. He doesn't know what Israel looks like. And I, I remember him saying, too, there was something in particular about the way the playground looked that made him think that. But he, he thought they were talking about that. And that struck a nerve with me. Because I, I had a million of those experiences. Like, when I was a little kid, my uncle was in this religious cult. It was a Christian cult. But it was a cult. And I, I remember hearing about it. I don't even know at that point that it was told to me that it was a cult. But I knew that, you know, my uncle was, was part of this group led by a guy named Ray. And there was a church right down the street from my house. And I remember one time, like, seeing through the doors when it was full of people. And they were all sitting on the pews. And there was an old guy talking to them. I guess he was the pastor. I don't know. My memory of him, he was wearing a, a ball cap, which is weird. But somehow in my head, that was the cult. Like, in my head, since I, since I didn't actually see this guy Ray... And didn't know like what the the group because they called it the group like the actual members just called it the group but because I didn't know like what the group looked like or where they met like it turned out it was in Hawaii Hawaii I think it was also maybe in my area but I know the guy lived in Hawaii and my uncle lived there for a while But in my head, like, since there was this church down the street, this congregation, and, like, my family, like, I didn't go to church. My grandparents did and stuff. But because, like, my family didn't, I wasn't familiar with churches and that kind of thing. And this isn't some joke, like, oh, every, every church is a cult. This isn't some stupid like that. It was just that I didn't have a visual for ray and the group and this one time seeing inside that church down the street and seeing people in there and seeing this man talking to them i was like oh that's ray and the group but of course it wasn't and for years i i, I it became 
a memory to me. It became like, that became a real memory to me. Like I believed probably for years that that was my uncle's group. I also, I remember my grandma used to talk about God sometimes. I don't remember her hammering it into me, but I do remember her talking about God sometimes. And this is one of those uh, cute kid things. But I think one time she was talking about God and the mailman came and dropped off some mail. And then my, my mind turned like what he looked like into this cartoon image of that guy. Uh, it was like a cartoon image in my head of the mailman. And I remember telling my mom, like, God's the mailman. Which sounds made up. Like, if, if a parent said that about their kids, oh, today Eric came home and he said, God's the mailman. I mean, it sounds like the name of a stupid children's book. God's the mailman. But it's like the type of thing where if a parent posted that on Facebook, oh, today Eric said God's the mailman. He thinks, you know, it's like you'd be like, oh, you're making that up to make him sound, you know, naive and precocious, whatever. But that was actually the power of association. Like my grandma was talking to me about God and the mailman showed up and I saw him walk up and I, it was just God's the mailman. That was an actual thought I had. It wasn't like a conviction where I was like, no, no, that's God. It was just for a day I had that in my head. And like I remember my mom laughing about it. But it's like what you're seeing at the time that an idea is introduced to you. Like, because I think I remember Miles saying like the playground was just kind of like drab and it matched like how he thought Israel looked like. And because they're talking to you about Israel in this room and then you go out to the playground, it's, it's just like the mailman where it's like this idea is being put in your head and then you're seeing this thing that kind of feels like that thing to you. And so then the playground becomes Israel. And it would make sense in a weird, you know, if you're new to the world, it would make sense that the thing that they're talking to you about in Sunday school, Israel, is nearby. Like, it would make sense that that's something that's, you know, around, that's in your vicinity. The idea that they're talking about a place on the other side of the world in a time long, long, you know, so early, you don't even have a concept of how old that is. You still don't. You know, so what's what's more likely to you? Like, you're going to be able to visualize this faraway place in a faraway time or that you're going to see the playground and be like, that's Israel. Israel's something right there. And the descriptions of Israel, like, that's what Miles said. He's like, the descriptions of Israel, like, it felt like that place. You know, it it, it felt like the playground. But people are going around like it wouldn't surprise me like I'm I don't mean to put thoughts in his head here. But it wouldn't surprise me if to this day when he hears Israel, that's in the composite somewhere. Because that's still true for me. It's, I've talked about this on here before, but like when you read a book 
and there's no movie or you haven't seen the movie, you visualize somebody. And it might not even match the actual description of the character in a book. Like I've been reading a book before and they don't describe one of the characters very early on, but the character's in the story, so you start to visualize them. You see a face, you see a, a look, and you didn't choose it. A character named John in a book. You're not like, oh, I'm going to imagine that John has a black beard and a bald head, and, you know, he's wearing these kind of boots. It just comes to you. You're just like, oh, that's what he looks like. And then at some point later in the story, they're like, John scratched his red beard. And he was so thin that you could see his rib cages bulging. And you're like, oh. You experience almost this cognitive dissonance. Because up to that point, you've been imagining John a certain way. And all of a sudden, the book just told you something else. And it's interesting to read a book after having seen a movie because it's very difficult not to see the characters in the movie. Like, I read Lord of the Rings after having seen the movies. And when I was reading that book, and it didn't take anything away from it because I love the Lord of the Rings movies. The Lord of the Rings movies. I love them. Don't know if I'll ever watch them again. I'd like to, but I don't know if I ever will. But when I read the books, like... it. It was very difficult for me not to visualize most of the characters as the, the actor in the movie. It didn't take anything away, but I wish that I could have read it without... I, I wish I would have read it earlier just to see what my mind would have done with what those characters looked like. You know, you see it with The Outsiders where... I read the book The Outsiders many times, but yeah, I saw the movie before that. I was into them simultaneously, but I saw the movie before that, and even though the descriptions of the characters are different in the book than they are in the movie, like the character Dally is a towhead blonde in the book. In the movie, he's Matt Dillon. Dark hair, he's Matt Dillon. What they call a dark-haired Matt Dillon. But last, and I reread The Outsiders, I don't know, it's probably been 10 years, more than 10 years maybe. But I, I reread it in adulthood. I read it a few times growing up, and I reread it in adulthood. To this day, though, like I can't not visualize Dallas Winston as Matt Dillon. I just can't. And once again, like Lord of the Rings, I love that. I love the actors in The Outsiders. It's perfect. I am totally cool with visualizing them. But I wish I could have experienced it without that just to see what my mind would have produced. Because again, it's how I was introduced to those characters. I was introduced to those characters looking a certain way and sounding a certain way in the movie. So how can I not do that with the book? But I, I run into this a lot because I try not to, I try not to be, you know, obviously I'm very weird. I try not to be too weird for people in daily life. I keep a lot close to my chest. I keep, I keep a lot of what I think and who I am. And it's not that I'm being dishonest or being somebody else. 
I just turn on a different part of myself. That part of me is real too, but it's just that I, I keep a certain part of myself, like who I am privately away from everything else. I try to. But every once in a while I'm reminded that someone else's point of reference is so different. Or sometimes I'll, I'll make a point about something that I think has a very clear intention or pertains to a very specific thing. Like I remember saying something on this show when I first started doing it and I was, what was it? I said, you know, people really judge each other for not surviving as well as other people. Like some people don't survive as well as other people. And this guy who lives in town, who I haven't seen for probably eight years, kind of an acquaintance, but I, I would see him at parties and drink with him. And I remember he had heard that and he was like, oh man, he sent me a message. He's like, it's so right. But to him, what that meant was like something to do with poverty. Like he had this like commie take on it. Like he kind of interpreted that, like me saying like, you know, people, they judge you. I don't remember my exact words, but it was something like people judge each other for not surviving as well as as they could or something to that effect like pe judging people for not you know surviving as well as other people and just his interpretation of that was almost like that was like some sort of pro commie statement and he was like oh totally right and i was like it's so interesting that whatever his association is with with those words brought to mind something very different and i remember i was just like hey yeah man and what he said wasn't political. It was just clear from the way he responded that it, it had that kind of feeling to him. When I just meant it in the most general way possible, survival, I don't even know what I meant. It was years ago. But it wasn't really, it wasn't, it wasn't a humanitarian statement and it wasn't an anti-humanitarian statement. It was just a, who know who the fuck knows what I was thinking. Some people don't survive as well as other people do. I mean, someone could, could take a different misinterpretation of that and say like, Oh, he's saying like survival of the fittest. That wasn't it either. Nobody, nobody said that. But just I remember this guy because I remember thinking like, oh wow, like he he heard that completely differently. And it, what I'm talking about is subjectivity, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I don't think we often think about that level of subjectivity. It's like, oh yeah, we all have different taste. But how much of that comes from just your your formative experiences? I mean, you hear it about people, too. It's, it's not even just, you know, what they visualize. It's not even the composites in their head when they hear a certain idea. It's also just all of their formative experiences. This is what people are talking about when they talk about trauma and any, anything like that. Um, you know, it's like someone, a friend of mine dated a guy who uh, his first girlfriend ever or his first wife or something, I think it was his first girlfriend, like, just cheated on him horribly. 
And to this day, you know, 20 years later, the guy is just a paranoid, jealous freak. And people will get that way anyway. But a big part of it is the fact that this guy's like formative experience, his, his introduction to romance ended that way with just heartbreak, betrayal, embarrassment, humiliation. And it did a number on him. It pretty much ruined him. It's like, imagine a scenario where a guy meets some really cool girl in college. They move in together. Oh, she's cool. Oh, she, she has the same interests. This is my first real girlfriend. We do everything together. And sometimes she, she goes and she visits her hometown and like stays with her parents during holiday breaks. She's from a small town. That's cool, yeah, whatever. And then he finds out that when she's been going to her hometown, she's sleeping with her wigger ex-boyfriend from high school. And making fun of her current boyfriend in private text messages with her wigger ex-boyfriend from high school. That could, that could easily ruin a person forever. That's a, a really funny... <laughs> that's a funny scenario. I bet that's happened. I, I, I bet like some like cool indie girl met some like awkward, nerdy indie guy and they, they fell in love and she was from a small town and like she'd go back and visit her hometown and fuck her wigger ex-boyfriend from high school I bet that's happened but you can imagine that would just that formative experience could just, that could completely ruin a person and from now on that's their framework you know it's like a woman who's been sexually assaulted from the time she's very young is going to form a, you know, that's that becomes a framework about like what men are and what men want, what men will do. And some of them will. But uh, that then they then bring that with them. I love that scenario. Someone's like indie rock girlfriend goes back to her hometown on college breaks and hooks up with her wigger ex-boyfriend from high school in this small fucking town. I'm going to write that movie. That's her Brokeback Mountain. And I don't even know if that joke makes sense. I've never seen Brokeback Mountain. That's her Brokeback Mountain, though. Brokeback Wigger. <laughs> I'm going to make that movie Brokeback Wigger. It's not going to have anything gay in it, but it's going to be called Brokeback Wigger. Um, yeah, just getting into formative experiences, your introduction to things. I was having more of this guy, you know, it's getting a little heavy here. But those introductions, those formative experiences, I'm more interested in just thinking about the composites and just the disconnect, like the connection that it creates 
to be able to talk about ideas at all with other people and to have them match up at all, which a lot of them do. A lot of our composites do match up. Like we do have a shared reality and that shared reality in part comes from the fact that we see some of the same things in our head when we hear the same words and ideas. But how there's many times where that's not the case. Like I was talking to someone at work and I was like, oh, we should play some oldies on the radio. And they were like, yeah. But when I think about that, I'm like, I'm imagining like every night to school night songs, not the exact songs, but, you know, doo-wop, 1950s, 60s music, rockabilly. I'm imagining things like that when I hear oldies. But to someone else, that could sound like something else entirely. There's a lot of different kinds of oldies. It's a pretty general term. And I think I'm someone, you know, if I really get going, I tend to over-explain what I'm saying and try to like fill in as many gaps as possible. And I think a part of that is because I don't want the idea to be misunderstood. But sometimes by over-explaining you run the risk of being misunderstood even more. You create more opportunity for misunderstanding when you could just stick to something simple and not worry about whether they see the same thing in their head as you. Whether they understand it the way you do. Because I know that when I was younger and I would read books, if I would read philosophy or something, I, I was not... Like, I thought I was understanding what was being said, but I was interpret interpreting it very differently from how it was intended and very differently from how I would interpret it today. And I think there's a use to that, but it's weird to think about now that, like, I just couldn't really comprehend it. So my brain tried to, you know, you know make up the, the missing data. My mind tried to fill in the blanks. And we do that a lot, you know, we, if we don't understand something, we try to fill in the blanks. We try to make it make sense. <sighs> and that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what happens, like when someone says a word to you and you visualize it in the way that you understand it, like someone says they like metal and you go, oh, Slipknot. I said that to an older lady once, like in her 60s. I was like, oh, I'm into heavy metal. And she was like, oh, I love that stuff. And then she was into Aerosmith. Like her idea of heavy metal is Aerosmith. And uh, that's fine. But it's like we, we fill in the blanks. And it's not that she didn't understand what I was saying. It's just that she understood it very differently. Someone else fills it in with Slipknot. Someone else fills it in with this or that. Remember when I got into the band Rudimentary Peni when I was a teenager? I was talking, like, I had this friend, and, like, we had both, like, gotten into punk a little bit. You know, my punk phase was very short. But we both gotten into punk a little bit, and we were into the same stuff, and then we went different ways. Like, I, 
I got more into heavier music. And then he got into softer music. He got really into indie rock and, you know, what they would call emo. Things like that. And I remember, though, like, you know, right around the time that our paths were kind of, you know, going different ways musically, like, he knew that I'd gotten really into the band Rudimentary Peni, but he'd never heard them. And I remember, like, we were talking about musical taste. He's like, well, you, you just listen to this, like, rude punk. And I was like, that's not what this stuff is. I was like, rudimentary peanut. It's not just, like, rude. I mean, I think because it had the word rudimentary, which has nothing to do with rudeness. But I think, like, being a kid and just, oh, that must be rude music. That must be, like, guys burping into microphones. Must be just offensive. And I remember being like, oh, he has a, a totally different idea about what I'm listening to, and, and for that matter, why. And when he hears about the things that I'm listening to, he has a much different visual of it. But I'm doing that too. I mean, there are many times in my life where I heard about a movie or a band or, or just anything. And I, I already had this. I mean, let's use an example of something I've never seen before. Around probably 2004, I remember a lot of people I knew, I remember going to college too, and like people were, were tripping out over this movie, I believe it was called Amelie. It's kind of a manic pixie dream girl sort of, you know, had a lot of indie appeal here in the States. I believe it was French. I don't know though. And like, I never saw it, but based on what I knew about the people who were really into it, I have no idea what it's about. All I know is what that girl looks like. And even my memory of what she looks like is probably different than she looks like. And, you know, maybe my assumptions are right. But I'm imagining this very twee, what they would call twee movie. It's in the twee genre. I don't know if that's true at all. I don't know what the plot is, but I just, I have this idea. And I formed it back then. I haven't thought about that movie since then. But I had this idea about what it was then. When in reality, I had no idea. My brain just kind of filled in these blanks. Like, oh, everybody's... Uh, my college did a screening of it. They're like, oh, on Thursday night, they're going to be showing Amelie in the auditorium. And I was just like, oh, I, I know what that is. <laughs> I know what that is. But in reality, I didn't, and I don't today. And it has happened where I've, I've heard about something and then eventually seen it. And my preconception of what it was not even for better or worse like this isn't just like a thing where you judge something this isn't like oh i had this negative response to something i had this negative preconception to something before i ever saw it and it turned out to be good it, this isn't even you know a qualitative thing a qualitative thing this isn't even that it's just simply having a different idea of it than it was for better or worse could be could be a totally neutral response either way. But when I've actually been introduced to something, it could be a band. You heard about a band your whole life. That happened to me with the Smiths. 
the Smitties. Where I had seen some photos of the Smiths when I was young. And I just assumed I knew what they sounded like. And what they were. And then when I finally heard them years later, I was like, oh, this is the Smiths? This is the Smiths? This is Smith? And hearing the Smiths now, like, they sound like the Smiths. Like, that's undeniably the Smiths. It, it, their sound fits their image. It fits what they were. But I had a very different idea. And, and not, like, totally different. Like, in the ballpark. But I guess I didn't imagine that uh, Morrissey's vocals sounded like that. You know, I imagined a, a much different voice. And it was a moment there where I was like, oh, I I thought I knew what they sounded like, even though I didn't. And what they actually sound like is quite different. Like, the, the feeling it puts across is much different than I expected. And so it's always interesting when that happens. It could be a person. We, like, we do that about people. Like, what, what's she like? What's he like? That's a big question. Like... If someone meets somebody noteworthy, other people who consider that person noteworthy will be like, well, what, what was she like? What's he like? What's he, what does it feel like to be around him? <sighs> and what you imagine is probably very different from the reality. Sometimes it's not, but what you imagine is probably quite a bit different. But you formed an idea about it. And so, you know, that's a source of a lot of miscommunication, too, though. You know, when you hear a certain word, you have this composite, you have a visual of what it is. You have this idea. Some of it's based on formative experiences. You know, it could be based on anything. You hear Israel. Like, if I'm in a conversation with Miles about Israel... And he's talking about it, which has never happened. Maybe, I think it has, but, uh, uh, but if he's talking about it, there's some part of him that's still probably imagining that playground at his church. Doesn't necessarily impact what he's saying, but it, it's there. If porn comes up, you know, and I'm having a conversation about it, which never happens, I don't have conversations about porn, but if, if it comes up, like, I'm going to have a certain visual of it that the person I'm talking to might not have. I would guess if they're my age or around there, give or take five, ten years, they're probably visualizing something very similar to what I am. But if they're 10 years younger or more, it might not be similar at all. If someone mentions politics or a specific aspect of politics. I mean, if someone says the words conservative or liberal, 
you know, the person you're talking to might have a much different visualization of what that is. They're definitely going to have different preconceptions. And if something goes against those preconceptions, though, they don't know how to reconcile it. Like, you know, I was saying a minute ago how, you know, the mind tries to fill in the blanks. Like, if someone finds out that you have an opinion that could be associated with conservatism today, they're going to fill in the blanks about who you are and what you believe. And in many cases, they're going to be right, and in many cases, they're going to be wrong. And then more blanks are going to get filled in from there. But if you prevent people from filling in the blanks, it really screws with them. Like if someone is conservative or has conservative values, but is eccentric and creative, has a unique worldview, a lot of libs aren't really going to be able to understand that. You know, they're really not. Like they, and they can't. They don't. It's, it's much easier to, to just be like, to shut... Because like, what the mind does when it can't fill in blanks to make sense of something is it will actually cut out the things that don't make sense to them. If you are an eccentric and unique conservative, of which there are many out there, but if you are an eccentric and unique conservative... Someone who hates conservatives and doesn't know how to reconcile that will just as likely cut out all of the stuff that doesn't make sense and just put you in a box. They'll be like, well, it's far easier to ignore the other stuff. Like, I can't deal with this cognitive dissonance. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut the rest of that out. And now you're just a Republican. You're actually just a, a Bible Belt Republican because I don't know how else to, to reconcile this. And people don't like to live amongst ambiguities. It's what I've said time and time again, which is, you know, people are far more comfortable with a member of their tribe who has done something awful than they are someone who they don't know where they we don't they don't know where and what they are they're far more disturbed by the ambiguity they're far more disturbed when they can't fill in the blanks and they'd actually choose something far more awful they'd actually rather be around something far worse than around something that they just can't reconcile in their mind. Because it's much easier to have an enemy, it's, it's much easier to have a friend or an enemy than it is to have something that you just don't understand, even if it's not a threat to you. And this might be basic stuff to people, I don't know. But it's something that I've been made aware of over and over again throughout my life. Going back to porn, porno, you know, pornography is relative. 
And if you're sexually turned on by chairs, looking for very specific types of pictures of chairs to, to jack off to, that is porn. That's porn to you. But if uh, you, and you wouldn't be wrong, like if every night you look up pictures of wooden chairs and you jack off, and you were to tell someone, yeah, look at porn, you wouldn't be lying. But if you were to tell someone, yeah, I, I look at porn, their mind isn't going to go to chairs. It's going to go to, you know, sex. It's going to go to nudity. It's going to go to what we typically consider smut. And that's because it's the most common thing. But that's what your brain does with everything. Your brain is going to try to do that with everything. It doesn't, your brain doesn't automatically, or even if you try, it's hard to think this way, but your brain definitely doesn't automatically go, I don't know what he means by porn. Whatever he's talking about, it, it's something that gives him a sexual thrill that he seeks out. But I'm going to leave it, I'm going to leave it blank. Instead, you fill in the blank with whatever you associate the word porn with. And like talking about myself, where it's like, I'd rather just see photos of clothed women of a certain body type. That does some, that does more for me than hardcore porn. But the way that I interact with it is no different than I would hardcore porn. So it is porn to me. And while somebody would, like if somebody caught you looking at pictures of women in a certain type of jeans, you know, in a suggestive pose, not just wearing jeans, but it's like if you were looking at photos of women's asses in like a certain fit of jeans or something like that, they're going to be like, oh, he's looking at something naughty. But is that porn? If you're interacting with it, if you're jacking off to it, you're interacting with it no differently than you would pornography of any kind, of the most extreme kind. But if someone were just to see those photos, would you say, yeah, they're inappropriate. You don't want to be looking at them at work. But would they say that is porn? Probably not. They might not be able to answer that question super easily. Um, I like listening to music. Well, that's another one. You know, they might not think about a specific type of music, but they're going to make certain assumptions based on what music is to them. <sighs> Tired here. I just did, uh, it's my sixth 60-hour week in a row, my sixth six-day week in a row, and there's no end in sight. I hired this new sales guy at the start of the month, 
and we killed it for Labor Day. Labor Day is a huge sale weekend. You know, our store has monthly goals set by the company, but we don't normally, we've had a number of big holiday sales, but Labor Day is a huge one because they actually set goals for the four-day window around Labor Day, including Labor Day, the Friday through Monday. And our store was expected to make, between both sides of the store, it was expected to make, you know, a total of over $80,000. And we we did. We've had a hard time. We've, we've barely met our goals since we opened. And I worked incredibly hard to make that happen. Everybody did. But as the manager, I was just, you know, I think I, I mentioned on here that, you know, around the middle of August, my warehouse guy, who I just depend on so much, I love the kid, he's, he's irreplaceable, but he was thinking about quitting, and then he decided instead just to take a two or three week vacation, and we trained this other guy who works there, who doesn't normally do that stuff, but we trained him to fill in while the other guy was on vacation. And the night that the warehouse guy went on vacation, his his replacement, his fill-in, got arrested and he was in jail for a week and a half. And so this plan just fell apart. And so that meant work, me working extra hours, me doing the warehouse guy's job on top of my other job, on top of my other job, on top of my other job there. You know, I do a lot there. And, you know, I didn't complain. I mean, I, I was very discouraged. I'm like, every time I come up with a plan to deal with something, it just falls apart. Just fate. Fate has just made this mountain very steep. This retail store mountain very steep for me. It's so steep. It's insane. I can handle it. But, man, it never ends. And there's, you know... I, I was talking about this job a lot on here for a while and it just never ends. There's so many other things I could talk about related to it. It just never ends. But that happened, so that meant a lot of me having to do a lot of, meant goodbye two-day weekends for the foreseeable future. And then right when the warehouse guy came back, I had this 63-year-old lady doing sales for me and we're so short-staffed that the only reason I get any days off are that the salespeople can be there when I'm not there. And so this lady would be there on Tuesdays, which gave me Tuesdays off. And then this other sales guy would be there on Wednesdays, which gave me that day off. And then right when the warehouse guy came, right before he came back, this lady quit and she was just a headache all the time. And you talk about religious conviction. She was born again and thought Halloween was evil, he believes in demonic possession, which I do too in my own way, but she had this very shallow view of what demonic possession is, which is kind of funny up to a point, but when then when you realize that she's just got a nasty attitude all the time, it's not fun. But one time she asked me, she's like, are you a Christian? And I was like, no, you know, but I, I believe in something beyond all this. And she's like, that's okay. But she said it in a way that was like, that's not okay. And then I was like, I've read the Bible front to back twice. You know, there's a lot in it that you know, I got a lot out of it. And this has happened to me with a lot of Christians, born-again Christians. I know there's plenty of people who would love to talk about this stuff, but just in day-to-day -day life, 
I don't bring this stuff up. I don't try to talk about this stuff. But when I, you know, there's a relative of mine too who's a born again Christian. And when I've tried to talk about God at all or spiritual concepts and do it in a way that is friendly to their view, not pretending to be Christian, but that's friendly to their view. They don't want to do it. Like they don't even. And and maybe this ties all back. It does. It ties all back because it's like their visual of what that is is very different from what my visual of it is. And like when she asked me, like, are, are you a Christian? And I say, no, but, you know, I believe in something beyond all this. That is that to me is a, a very Christian friendly response. It's a much different response than like, no, I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. You know, it's it's way different than that. It's a yes and rather than than a no but. It was a no but because I said, no, I'm not a Christian, but but it was what I was actually saying was a yes and and then I, I mentioned I've read the Bible front to back twice. Which is a lot more than you're going to get from most. You're, you know, you're not even going to find Christians who have done that. Not that reading it twice is that incredible, but I mean, it does take a long time. It can be a chore at times. And uh, but it was interesting just that I've had this experience numerous times, especially since I've read the Bible, where. All they want to know is, are you a Christian? Like, there's no, there's no desire to actually talk about God because I love talking about God. I've I've made an effort to do less of it, and and eventually I no longer had to make an effort. I just don't do it as much, but I, I think about God all the time, or I just it's it's just ingrained in me, you know. It's just uh, it's just there. And, uh, but my idea, I mean, as I said earlier, God's a mailman, but really like, you know, my composite is different than theirs and there's no exploration to be had there. She just wanted to know, am I, am I a Christian? And I said, no. And she said, well, that's okay. I could tell it's not okay. But anyway, she quit abruptly. Nobody liked her. You know, there's stuff I, I, I... Thing is, there's people at this job, people who work for me who have driven me absolutely crazy, but they're still, they still have really great qualities that I appreciate. It just sucks that their shadow is what it is. I have developed this very Jungian view of the people under me where I'm just like, man, like... The light side of you is, is just so great. It's why I hired you. It's why I've kept you here. It's what I appreciate about you. These qualities are great, but your shadow, man. You got to hide that shit. You know, you got to hide that a bit better because it's funny how you just, when you have this top-down view of people in a store, you really see that shadow a lot. But she quit very abruptly. And, you know, it was kind of a relief. I mean, it was certainly a relief for most people. But it happened at a time when I was like, oh, the warehouse guy's back. I'm going to get two-day weekends again. 
and then she quit so now I don't have coverage on one day of the week and you know you know about a week later I found a guy to replace her great like a big personality he's only 25 but he has you know sales experience he knows how to sell he knows how to talk to customers and be aggressive without he knows how to be aggressive but also disarming like the sort of salesperson we've needed but we've really struggled to um and the store doesn't make you know the furniture side these salespeople aren't making much money there's potential to but like they're just not making much money and good salespeople who aren't making much money aren't going to stick around and so it's it's been a real burden on me trying to hire people who are competent at sales but who can also deal with not making the kind of money that a real salesperson wants to make it's just constant dilemma there but uh I don't know, this guy, like, he didn't even give it a chance. Like, he, uh, I hired him, he had a great, he got really sick, but he, he powered through it. And Labor Day, like I said, we had a, a wild weekend, just a phenomenal weekend. And I was like, all this hard work I've been putting in, it's, this is it. We were the only store, granted, our, as a new store, our goals are a lot lower than the other stores, but we struggled even to meet our lower goals. We struggled to get foot traffic. You know, one side of the store, the liquidation side, does all right. We've met our goals there a couple times, a couple monthly goals. But the furniture side is just so hard. Being a, a new furniture store inside of this other store, I manage them both, but it's like two stores in one. So hard to build up the clientele. So hard to get the foot traffic. Even the the, the few people that come in, it's it's so hard to get them to just drop thousands of dollars on furniture it's just it's very difficult but labor day weekend we just it was phenomenal we did great numbers you know we were the only store who exceeded our goals completely and uh you know i guess yeah maybe one other did but we're, we're the only store that has both a furniture store and a liquidation store inside of it that exceeded both sides. And uh, anyway, this new guy, like, he, you know, he, I was really happy. I was like, you know, I, I can see some issues with him. He's very sloppy. But he has the personality we've needed for this job. Like, he knows how to engage with people, which is half the battle. But then, uh, you know, a few days later, he got drunk and broke his foot in his garage. And then just, you know, I understood, like, that's, you know, I understand you got to take a few days off and get this figured out. But then he came back and it's just no effort whatsoever. Just, I told him, like, I'll be your messenger so you don't have to walk on that a lot. But it, just, it was just clear, this guy's not going to make it. Last weekend, I just I could not get him off his phone. He was playing a game, which is new. Like we've had, we have a lot of people you can't get away from their phones, but we've never had somebody who just plays games on their phones all day. And so he was doing that, and I'm just like, man, this is this is a problem. 
but I depend on these people so much. Like certain jobs there, I depend on just having somebody so badly that I have to navigate how I deal with issues very carefully. Especially this guy who it was clear like he was just kind of testing the waters of this job and he didn't really care about it. But then he, he called out sick yesterday, Monday, and then he just no-showed today, so he's gone. If he even tries to come back again, I mean, I, I have to get rid of him because you don't, you don't no-show. But so now I'm back again to uh, back looking for somebody. I just cannot get these people to stick around, and they all like me. You know, it's a thing. It's like... I've, I've thought about it. I'm like, am I doing something wrong? And I'm not, you know, like I'm learning like any issues with me, any mistakes I make, they only, the only people affected by them are my bosses. And ultimately they're happy with me. They've, they've seen like what I can deal with, what I can handle. They've seen how committed I am with zero complaints. I don't complain. So the only mistakes I make that really impact anybody are, you know, my bosses. And, you know, most of the mistakes that they've talked to me about are mistakes of people under me. So it's like, does, does he not know how to do that? Did you not train him better? And it's like, no, I trained him. It's just people are fuck ups. And I take a lot of like, and I always take responsibility even when I don't need to. Like, I've had many employees make mistakes, and my boss's upper management has been like, what's going on with that? And I'm like, you know what? Don't blame them, blame me. Those are my people. Like, I'm, I'm very much that type of boss, where, like, it's much easier for me to take the bullet. And when I do, I think my bosses know what I'm doing. I think they recognize that, like, ah, yeah, it wasn't his fault, but... He's taking responsibility because that's the kind of manager he is. But uh, it's so hard to find reliable people. And what I was going to say, though, is like I've thought long and hard, like, am I am I causing this? And I, you know, this isn't me just protecting my ego like I'm I'm not. And even the people who quit under bad circumstances or leave because of this or that, they always tell me, even after they leave, they're always like, you know, you were an awesome boss. Like, you know, you're the coolest boss I ever had. Things like that. So I really don't think I'm causing any of this. Um, I think it's just the nature of the industry, maybe the store, maybe... Um, I think it's, just, it's so many different factors, but just finding reliable people... And then on top of that, like re reliable people who can just show the, the most basic level of discipline and confidence and competence. You know, from as an employer, like I say, I, as the manager, I hire and fire people like I don't run the company, but I'm their employer. I'm their boss. I'm the one who gave them a job and, you know, make sure they have stuff to do. And, you know, I'm the one employing them. But until you're in, in this position, like, you know, you when you work jobs, you're always like, oh, I'm, they're going to fire me. And you do get fired. 
especially really corporate places that have strict policies and stuff. But, you know, a lot of places, it's like the last thing your boss wants to do is fire you. And you can make all kinds of mistakes and be irresponsible. But if you are there and you can show even just the most basic level of competence, and it does depend on the industry. Like most of these people are minimum wage, just doing very basic jobs. But still, like if you can just show up regularly and exhibit the, just the most basic level of competence, there's a slim chance I'm going to fire you. And I've just kind of accepted. And like one of my bosses who's very experienced in all this, he said the same thing, but I've learned, I've learned it firsthand as well, which is that, you know, you're always going to have like a few people, two or three people who are great. And those people are going to do most of the work and they like to do the work. And then you're going to have, you know, most of the other people are just going to kind of be there. Like you want them to be, to know how to do things and you want them to do the things you ask of them. But beyond that, you really can't expect them to be great. And it says nothing about their character or, or that they're not great at other things, but it's just in terms of like what they need to do on a day-to-day -day basis at a job. It's like, you just can't expect that much. And it, you know, it's different if you're an air traffic controller or something, but when it comes to an industry like this, which is still new to me, which is why my mind is just constantly blown by this whole thing. Um, you know, you're not going to look to fire somebody because it, it's such an ordeal to replace people. It's such a gamble. You've already established a rapport with this person. You already know what to expect from them. Now you have to fucking go through resumes and bring and wait, you know, spend the time interviewing people and then hope that they show up regularly and hope that they're not worse than the, the other people. You know, I, I hate hiring. Hiring sucks. I like giving people jobs. I like seeing how new people like work within the team and what they're good at and getting to know them. But these resumes are so abysmally bad. Like with the salespeople, maybe twice a month, I get resumes from people who just have the basic qualifications. And in many cases, it sucks because the people who are qualified aren't going to be able to make the money right now that they ought to make. And so interviewing them it's like they're like am i gonna make the higher end of the spectrum here like because the ad that the company posted says like oh if, you, if you're a salesperson here you'll make between three thousand to eight thousand a month so of course everyone is like am i gonna make eight thousand dollars a month and i you know i have to find a, a tactful way of navigating that because it's like no i mean you're gonna make the low end of that spectrum right now most of you even if you're good, you're, you're not going to be making the kind of money you want to make. But I want good people. But, 
you know, it's just my dilemma with this. Um, anyway, I don't even know what I'm talking about. I don't even know like what my train of thought is. This is just what happens when you work too much. But just, yeah, the hiring process, like resumes, um, so many of them are just so abysmally bad. Like, and they're not even bad resumes in the sense that, like, they don't follow today's updated version of what a good resume is. Like, you know, they teach you these resume class. If you've ever been on unemployment, they make you go to these resume classes where it's like, here's how to write a good resume. Like, if you don't do this on your resume, employers won't even look at it. If you don't do this on your resume, they're just going to throw your resume right in the trash. They're not even going to look at it. You know, you hear shit like that. I don't even have a chance to think that way. I don't even have a chance to look at these resumes and say, oh, is this like a well-structured, good resume? What I notice is the, the number of people where things are misspelled. Things Things are just words sentences cut off this thing has not been edited lowercase eyes the wrong the wrong letter will be capitalized like a random word in a sentence will be capitalized like the name of the company they worked for is they misspelled target it's incoherent it's it's garbage Like, the, their name isn't even capitalized. And it's not a stylistic choice. Like, oh, I'm doing a lowercase aesthetic. No, this is just... This isn't even, like... This is... This is stuff that autocorrect. Like, this is, this is stuff that Microsoft Word will fix for you. And if that's, you know, too much, like, you can... Just look this up. It's not difficult at all. Like, so that's most of what you have to choose from. And it's been eye-opening. Like, I've done hiring, a little bit of hiring before at other jobs. Like, not really, not, resumes were always given to me. Like, the only time I've been involved in hiring at other jobs is, like, HR picks out the people who are coming in for interviews, and I've been a part of interviews to help choose the candidate and whatever but I've never had to just sift through all of the resumes that come in and so it's been eye-opening doing that because I'm just like these it's just the most basic level of communication is not here and this is stuff that could be so easily fixed like this isn't even you know what information to include on a resume, how to structure it, how to make it look readable. This is what employers want to see on a resume in 2023. You, know, you can't even get to that level if you wanted to. It's just purely, can this person just show a basic level of coherence? It is rough out there. It is rough what people are like they're not um, like what are these people going to do 
if a guy who's very open-minded about who he hires for a minimum wage position, if, if a guy like me, who's pretty open, like when I'm hiring for this job, I'm, I'm very open-minded about who I hire. But if even I look at it for this minimum wage position, and I'm just like, I, I just couldn't possibly, I, I can't even think about bringing this person in for an interview, let alone giving them a job. That says a lot. And the, the fact that that's the majority. And a lot of these people are young, but that's no excuse. They're adults. But that's the state of things. I'm sure it's much different if you're hiring for a position that requires a certain level of education. I'm sure it's way different if you're hiring in some sort of profession. But you it's it's easier than ever to show basic competence, you know, when it comes to like spelling and capitalization and sentence just writing a sentence. I mean, I got a resume a few months ago and the, the guy wrote a little blurb at the top where it's like it was like, why you want this job kind of thing. And it was like, I want a job because I'm sick of my friends and family telling them, telling me I'm dumb. And I want to prove them wrong that I'm not dumb. And I was like, is this a joke? I don't, it, it wasn't from what I could tell. I was like, I almost want to bring this guy in for an interview. I'm like, if your friends and family think you're dumb and you put that on your resume as, as one of the reasons you want a job, I have a feeling we're going to feel the same way about you. Like when I saw that, I was like, is this a person who's on unemployment who has to apply to like three jobs a week? Like I remember the first time I was on unemployment and I would just, I I wanted to milk it for as long as possible. And so I would just, I would purposely apply to places that weren't gonna take my resume. I mean, what I'm saying right now is probably illegal or something, but this was a long time ago statute of limitations is up but I remember applying to places that like weren't gonna hire me and like sending like a crappier version of my resume or something just to because I, I don't want to be offered the job like when I saw this guy's resume I was like is this that's what I wonder about a lot of these people I'm like is that what they're doing are these people on unemployment and they're just trying to milk it for as long as possible so they make their resume as bad as they can so that they won't get interviewed or hired? I have no idea. I don't think so, though. I think these are actually people who need jobs. And even a minimum wage stocking shelves job, I, I see this and I'm like, I, I can't even imagine talking to you. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure it's different in professions that require a little more from their candidates, but, uh, there's a lot of these people out there. And I guess before I go and I need to go cause I'm tired, I need to sleep. Um, it's funny how getting resumes, I visualize these people. It's like I was saying about um, books. 
anything like that where I'll get this resume with a name and a story on it, a work history, and like I form an idea of what this person looks and sounds like. And then it's weird if it's someone that I bring in because I'm like, that's not who they are. That's not what they look like. So you form these ideas about people. And what is it in your brain that does that? Like you get a resume and you say like, I know this is a person. There's a person behind this. And my brain is forcing me to imagine them. Why did it choose that particular face? Why did it choose that particular hair color? And it's the same part of your brain that does that when you read a book. Why am I imagining this? That's a good question in general. Why am I imagining this? children can run free.